0: To Pod Rocket. Uh, I'm Paul, and I'm very excited to have Andre Cohn with us today. Hi, Andre. How you doing?
1: Uh, great. Thank you so much for having me. It's Thanks okay. for
0: coming on. I mean, we're gonna talk about WebAssembly today. We're gonna talk about DuckDB. These are all really exciting things because I feel like WebAssembly isn't talked a lot uh, about a lot on like internet media that I might find on YouTube and stuff. So this is gonna be an exciting delve into what's coming with you know, what we know is the most common development and content platform in the world. Uh, So, you know, Andre is from the Technical University of Munich. (laughs) Before the podcast, he wanted to make sure that, you know, we're saying of Munich, because that's how that's the correct way to pronounce it. And He's from from the database group over there. So you're doing your PhD right now. And um, so your PhD is in databases, right? Yes. Yes. the general topic. Is it good? Have you enjoyed it? yeah so far it was
1: a fun ride i mean
0: well, i started, started. yeah I, I i started my phd
1: four years ago and um yeah we have a database here that we developed which is called hyper and the like the successor to hyper being umbra which is very fast and it's quite quite interesting to work on these projects but uh, yeah last year i i took a side turn and uh, explored WebAssembly a little bit uh, i came in touch with the with the founders of uh, DuckDB, Hannes and Mark. And yeah, we came up with DuckDB Wasn't, which uh, turned out to be a quite quite exciting project.
0: Right, so databases are, you know, there's like such a breadth of the types of use case applications out there. And I, before we get into, you know, the main topic of the podcast, which is DuckDB and WebAssembly, I'd love to just take a quick excursion and ask for my own selfish interest here. Like, what is, you know, what are what are some examples about the different types of problems that you maybe need to think about as a database scientist? Because you know, there's like all these terms that we have data lakes, we have like columnar monsters for aggregations, and I know there's like these different use cases and stuff. And I was wondering if you could just speak a little bit on, you know, the breadth of use cases and implementations. Because I feel like that matters a lot, right? So,
1: Yeah, so the the database landscape is very wide. As you said, uh, there are very many systems for very many use cases. But usually, like the the blunt answer is um, there is not one system that defeats every or, or is good at every situation, which means that, uh, yeah, there are these sweet spots for the different systems where they are fast, and then there are situations where they are not the best. And um, interestingly, the database where, that we talk about today, DuckDB, is uh, in a sweet spot where not too many systems are. Uh, it is an in-process analytical and relational database system. And the, the keyword here that you can focus on a little bit is in-process because in contrast to many systems out there, uh, you can just use it more or less as a query engine if you want. So like a large... Uh, User group of DuckDB is just, for instance, in the Python world, where you just spin up your Python script, have pip install yeah. DuckDB, and then you can just go from there, uh, querying with SQL, whatever data you have, right? This convenience is something that uh, is a very strong argument for DuckDB because existing systems usually ask you to install something, have a server running, uh, things like that. So, um, DuckDB focuses on very fast analytics in situations where you want to be ad hoc or, uh, embedded, uh, situations where you don't want to have the hassle of dealing with the server and, or,
0: yeah, you can use it as so well. That's server. what in process yeah. means. It means yes. it's like. It's in the Python process. Is that, can I think about it that way? Yeah, yeah. So if
1: you would just, in in memory. If you, the the interesting, no, it's not uh, only in memory. I mean, you can, it is in memory, but you can also use it uh, out of core. Gotcha. So with writing to disk. But the the key difference is if you have like a Python script and you want to use DuckDB, uh, you can just use it as if it was a Python library. So it feels very, integrated into your program whereas if you have an external database let's say postgres or so you would uh, set up postgres you would connect against or to postgres and then fire some sql queries against postgres the big difference here is that like the the approachability of this whole um, of this whole concept is very very strong because if you if you want to use duckdb in your script you can just without much setup uh, like uh, take it from there
0: so so you can you can use it as a library now when you say that does that mean I'm going to get tab completion in my code editor or when you say I can use it as a library is it more like we're talking lower level
1: no no Uh, I'm talking about if you have for instance in your process your your data sitting for instance in your pandas frame or so and you want to like pandas is very widely used in python for instance if you just want to query this existing data, the um, um, you don't need to ship your data somewhere else, but you can just use DuckDB to consume the data that you already have, which is A, fa- faster, and B, more convenient if you just uh, want to get your answers for your analytical queries.
0: And is the in-process kind of benefit here, the speed up? Because is, is one of those things, I'm just thinking lower level, because, oh, we don't need a you know, there's no inter-process communication, there's no network communication, there's no like paging as heavily in different sectors of memory on the CPU level and yeah. on in- Okay, so it's like, we're getting all these benefits into... Yes, so of course, with the
1: convenience, like the second big point is of course, if you have your, sitting, uh, your data sitting in in your process, you don't need to spend time shipping it over the wire to, or, or over a domain socket or whatever
0: uh, communication you use um, because we a socket has latency, right, as well. Yes, yes, yes. And I feel like usually as, you know, a higher level programmer myself, I think of a socket, I'm like, oh, it's a direct, it's like I'm talking to the other guy in the room, It's he's right there, you know, but there's still, there's something to be realized there if we're doing massive volumes of work. Gotcha. Great. So, all right, we got a little bit of database speak in here before we talk about, you know, really what you're focusing on, which is bringing DuckDB into web, WebAssembly. Right, and 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 exposing it to a bunch more use cases all over the place. So, do you want to maybe start off of talking a little bit about how you start get got started with the project and what is WebAssembly for people that are just stepping mm-hmm. into it?
1: Mm-hmm. So, um, as I said earlier, like my PhD um, actually is not like with the CWI people who invented DuckDB. Instead, we we are developing a main memory engine called Hyper and Umbra. But the the big upside or the big advantage of DuckDB is that it is more or less self-contained. So, in the in the, with WebAssembly being or becoming more and more popular, um, I got excited about the fact that you could pick this fast analytical database and bring it to WebAssembly without dealing with with very many problems that you would have to solve with a database that is more complex. So. Uh, For instance, Hyper and Umbra um, depend on on libraries that are very large and porting them to WebAssembly would be uh, a lot of work. And with with DuckDB, it was a lot easier. So how did I get to WebAssembly in the first place? Um, Well, it started as a side project. So I had a a pet peeve, you could say. Um, I was... Like when COVID started, like what you saw very often was these rather simple dashboards and you would see loading spinners all over the place, right? Yeah, exactly. And you had loading spinners all over the place initially because usually in the world where you have analytic servers uh, presenting analytical data to users, you would have a server. Like doing the processing and then the front and doing just more or less the dump rendering of the results, and this turns out to be a, a large bottleneck, right? Especially if you in the in the COVID situation we had this, where like ten thousands or even more users need to, or want to look at a dashboard uh, very frequent frequently, and then you just are left with the question: How do you scale up? How do you like? throw hardware at the problem. How can you like get the the request being uh, answered quickly? Right. So this is a problem. And I was a little bit surprised. That is, it is um, for these scenarios, uh, surprisingly hard to do all the analytical processing within the browser itself. So the analytical questions that you ask in these scenarios are rather simple, right? The problem is that JavaScript is not really well equipped to do analytics. So JavaScript is, even though it is of course a very flexible and dynamic and very widespread language, it's not the most efficient one. And if you want to, to crunch data or do more complex joins,
0: JavaScript is just not the right tool for the task. So, Sorry, if I may interject for a second. When you when you're talking about processing with JavaScript, we're saying, all right, and in, in this example that we're talking about in the yeah. back end, it's JavaScript grabbing this data, grabbing that data, combining, yeah. aggregating, summing, making yeah. our lines. Do, okay, gotcha. Yeah,
1: exactly. So this are our tasks yeah. that databases do all the time, right? So you just fire your SQL query against your your database of choice, and what the database internally will will do it will yeah it will join the uh, like the rows using hash tables and aggregating them and so on of course you can do this in javascript as well but javascript is just not the right fit it's just too slow so uh, with WebAssembly, this uh, picture shifts a little bit or changes a little bit because uh, web SMD is quite fast so if you if you bring a database to WebAssembly, my hopes were that you can get fast analytical processing in the front end and thus in many cases just eliminate the central analytic server so in that in in these situations you would just serve the very same dashboard for the user it would be the exactly same like output but you don't have you no longer have a server processing in the back background that you need to scale but instead everything is computed in the front end of course this has implications this is not working for every situation but the cool thing is that this was a let's say a first stepping stone towards a uh, an area that you could explore uh, um, because with the browser or front end being more powerful you can build much more exciting things right um, the, the cool thing is that uh, these, this data processing becomes more of a, a tandem operation. You, you have in the front end, you have analytical processing power. You have in the back end, analytical processing power. And then your decision where you do work is more or less dependent on what's your optimization target. If you, the, the big strength of doing things in the front end is latency. If you If you just want to have, let's say, a filter in your dashboard and you just have your uh, snappy interface like giving you the new range uh, you can decide whether if you want to just send it to some remote server which will immediately bring up the cost of the round trip to the server or you do it in the browser and you have immediately your snappy result so the difference there is very very surprisingly cool so if you if you have that once it's it's it really feels very snappy
0: to have have the processing done in the browser so how how is this uh different? I guess if I had a dashboard and I said, "Alright, I want to display all the covid data from Massachusetts." I brought it all in and I had got I don't know like a 30 or 50 megabyte array of numbers in memory, right? Now, that JavaScript is I feel like I'm pretty good at slicing that with a JavaScript and pretty good at combining it and it's pretty snappy. But what we're talking about is like on on another level, right? We're talking about intense processing in joins that need a database engine but you don't but we're bringing to the front is that kind of where this yeah
1: there there are sorry there are two two points here that i want to want to make of course i totally agree with you like uh, scanning through 30 megabytes of rows even in javascript is not a terribly expensive operation but but there are two sides to it first um Usually, like, of course, if you just compute a single sum or account or so, or minimum, maximum, blah, 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 this is simple. You just, Even to write this in, in code, this is in, in JavaScript, just usually a single loop. You just uh, compute something. This is uh, easily done. But let's imagine you have uh, three or four of these 30 megabyte um, sets of rows. And you just decide I want to join my COVID data with uh, the states, and then find something out over the course of a certain time range, and then uh, join this with uh, population or uh, like age uh, range or so. These kinds of parameters like immediately bring up the question: of How do you evaluate join sufficiently? And then like this is a business where databases are already very, very good at. And if you just do it by hand in JavaScript, you will end up A being slower and C, uh, B being um, uh, probably not optimal. Like is this, this for instance, uh, evaluating joins is a very well explored uh, problem in, in the database community, which has many um, rabbit holes if you just want to try uh, to build this yourself. I mean, I can almost guarantee you if you just hand like write this naively, you will end up with uh, an implementation that is not the optimal one. And um, but yeah, this is nothing you actually have to worry about, right? Especially if you know SQL. Like this is the second point that I wanted to talk about. If you know SQL, uh, you don't need to write a for loop over your 30 megabytes at all, right? So you just load your your data in your in your database and then you just write your sql query and the database takes care of everything else so it's not only about the fact that you uh, are efficient when processing but it's also the convenience to just use the querying language that you are
0: uh, that that many are familiar with right that's widespread and well known yeah. right okay so that totally makes sense and we're taking this and In the in the COVID example, I guess you know one possible. There's a bunch of ways you could do this, but one possible architecture is you you're running WebAssembly, DuckDB. You bring in the data, you load it live on that very you know loading of the web page, and then you can query that database to populate your graphs very quickly. Um, Conversely, could you have a web page with DuckDB, you know, that stores something in the local browser memory or or cache, and then you load that up and it's already there, sort of. Yeah. um, Cool. Okay.
1: I mean, we we are uh, exploring this um, quite a bit at the moment. Of course, this is something like local persistency in the browser is a difficult topic. I mean, usually people have something like IndexedDB that they use, which is not really fast. But um, there there are scenarios that we could focus on in the future, which would, for instance, allow us to just have a locally persistence version persistent version of DuckDB that would behave just like a normal database. This is for some reasons that are out of reach for us, not working today. Like for instance, the, uh, the browser APIs are a little bit evolving at the moment, What we would need is a local file system access that is fully synchronous, uh, this, like there are is a current origin trial in Chrome that allows us or it gives us uh, synchronous file system access. But unfortunately, the authors decide to, decided to have two calls in there being asynchronous, truncation, for instance, being one. And um, yeah, this hinders us at the moment to like go fully the, the native persistency route. But this is something we want to explore in the future. I wouldn't consider this to be like, uh, uh, especially today, not the main selling point of DuckDB wasn't, but this is a very exciting opportunity for the future. If he, if we are able to get it, uh, fully persistent locally, um, you would get indexed DB on steroids with DuckDB <laughs> wasn't without. Yeah. I mean, it is like yeah. that, right? So you have just your, your local database, like writing to your local browser. Uh, a file system and then whenever you you visit the website again you can just pick the data up that you left and just consume it with sql as you are used with like native applications on on, on mobile devices do this for ages right but right. in the browser right. you are usually very
0: limited in what you can do so um yeah, this this could be quite exciting. It could be very exciting. I, I mean, that could totally mm-hmm. change the way we think about websites. Um, also,
1: like, let me just get one thing, uh, one additional thing out. One strong point for um, DuckDB wasn't that we focused on is uh, consuming uh, data partially. So, like, one thing, um, if you, if you have a website and you have, for instance, on as AWS S3 or so your CSV or parquet file sitting, and you and you want to query them, Uh, the classical stack or architecture, how you would build this is that your JavaScript application would load the data into the browser and then do whatever you want to do with it. But databases traditionally are quite strong at just picking up those parts of the file that you are interested in. Right? So if you only read a subset of the columns within a parquet file, or parquet is a format that is also structured in, they call it row groups. Uh, you are only interested in a certain part of the parquet file because for instance it's ordered by time and you are only interested in let's say the last ten thousand entries in there then um, dr b wasn't will be able to query these files and read only the parts that qualify which is cool because then you can have your remote file being one gigabyte large but the relevant data for your browser relevant query is uh, in the order of let's say 10 to 20 megabyte or so, which will be then in a manageable
0: area. And that, that's, I mean, that's critical if you want it on the client side browser, because yeah. you could really have performance capabilities and hardware that's down in the dumps, you know, yes. for lack of a better phrase. And you want it to work for as many people as possible. Yeah, right? exactly.
1: I mean, this, uh, this also blends into what I said earlier with the, um, with the tandem between the browser and server side processing. Like I believe one very exciting use case for, for DuckDB Wasm is not to fully replace the server, but just um, work together with a, with a server-side uh, database to improve latency and scalability of the system. Because if you, like this is something we will be able to help users as well, but uh, with, with uh, let's say, a more distributed query optimization that spans across multiple nodes. But uh, the, the architecture in the future could just look like you have your local uh, browser-sided database, you have your server-sided database, and then you uh, answer queries with the lowest possible latency based on where the data sits. So if you spend, for instance, the time already to download a subset of the data, you can just filter it very instantly or, or almost instantly with the browser-based database, and then if you just want to query this gigabyte slash terabyte large uh, data sitting somewhere in the cloud, then of course it won't be uh, an option to download it to the browser. Then you use the the server-sided version. So this tandem could uh, could like lead to very interesting new ways how you design
0: these applications that would get rid of very many loading spinners today. I know I've used D3 before for massive data sets, and it's done a pretty good job. But you know that's only on some data. Like this is going to open up data, every type of data, every type of bit and byte that you can store. Um, and you know D3 is definitely it has its use cases. So maybe those people who need who did the spinners maybe should have checked out some of you know the new capabilities of D3. <laughs> it's interesting that you that you mentioned that. Like I'm. Uh,
1: or or we de- we developed duckdb wasn't together with uh, a professor at the CMU uh, Dominic Moritz who is the author of Vega do you know Vega I Vega do. is Vega is a visualization framework which is uh, based on d3 and um the the cool thing there is that it for instance talks arrow and uh, we can just feed uh, or integrate duckdb wasn't rather easily into Vega to just uh, like display whatever data you want to display, which allows you to just formulate your data processing with SQL instead of the Vega transforms, and then let Vega do
0: the visualization business with, uh, yeah, displaying your charts. Which sounds how it should be, you know, it's Mm -hmm. visualized. The the things that are good at what they do are doing the things that what they're good at.
1: Yeah. Hey, this is Emily, one of the producers for PodRocket. I'm so glad you're enjoying this episode. You probably hear this from lots of other podcasts, but we really do appreciate our listeners. Without you, there would be no podcast. And because of that, it would really help if you could follow us on Apple Podcasts so we can continue to bring you conversations with great devs like Evan Yu and Rich Harris. In return, we'll send you some awesome PodRocket stickers. So check out the show notes on this episode and follow the link to claim your stickers as a small thanks for following us on Apple Podcasts. All right. Back to the show.
0: I would love to take a little excursion also off the database. I mean, we could still get in. We'll probably get back into it, but you know about WebAssembly specifically. Um, so, you know, what is it? Uh, you know, it's it's this new sort of like compiled assembly language that runs in the browser. But I was wondering if you could, you know, enlighten us a little bit more about some of its capabilities, maybe some of its downfalls. Because every time I hear about something that's running. Some new feature in the browser, I'm like, all right, who's going to hack it first? You know, like, <laughs> what what are they going to find? How are they going to, what's the new way they're going to control my computer if it's not Flash games? You know, mm-hmm. so, so I wonder about the security as well. Yeah.
1: So, so WebAssembly is, is very interesting because it's, it's this, um, it's a binary instruction format in the first place that uh, all browser vendors pretty much agreed on to implement. Right. So this in, in the browser world, you also or always have the problem that you need to find the common denominator between all these different use cases. Right. So which is why JavaScript won't, won't disappear for, for a very, very, very long time, because everyone started using JavaScript. Everyone can speak JavaScript. Uh, this is a very excellent language for the purpose of uh, being platform independent. But uh, the problem that I mentioned earlier, earlier, earlier already is JavaScript is slow. So, um, with that having said, like WebAssembly is the answer to JavaScript being slow. It's just a instruction format that is spoken by all the major browser platforms plus a few native runtimes already. And, uh, it is, it can be compiled to machine code very, very efficiently. It is, uh, conceptually, it's, Uh, a stack based virtual machine, but you can lower it to machine code uh, very good. And um, this allows browsers to uh, get to near native speeds. It is also secure. So if you, um, uh, uh, sorry, WebAssembly is designed in a way that for instance, memory won't like shoot you into the foot. Like if if you take a C++ program and you just, let the user w- write whatever he wants to, right? This would be a very dangerous endeavor to, to run this code in your browser, right? If you, if you don't trust it, but the WebAssembly folks have done a good job, like, uh, keeping this isolated and safe. And, um, th- this gives you just a near native speed at, uh, with the security of a browser sandbox, which makes this the, the ideal target for, a uh, higher level, level languages like C++ to compile to it. So DuckDB is written in C++. We compile to WebAssembly and then just uh, rely on the browser to to uh, get this up to speed as much as it can. And the the very interesting aspect here is that the Chrome developers, for instance, be, uh, behind V8, the, uh, developed a compiler called Liftoff and Chrome is insanely good at, at executing WebAssembly. So uh, I, I once visited a, a talk here in Munich uh, of the of the Liftoff people, and they talked a little bit about how they compile WebAssembly, and it was amazing. So, for instance, they have this very quick first uh compilation and then upgrade to a more uh, like higher quality compilation output later when they see that your code is hot and so on. So these things are insanely complicated to build, but your browser just gives gives it to you. All you need to do is just compile your code in whatever language you, you uh, want to write it to WebAssembly and then just throw it into the browser and let the browser do the rest, which is of course amazing. I mean, this, uh, brings us to speeds that haven't been seen in the browser before uh, and combined with the focus on analytical processing of DuckTV, um, we can evaluate or or yeah, evaluate analytical queries very efficiently, in uh, which hasn't been done before. There is a, a WebAssembly version of SQLite, for instance, which is another database uh, that is not tailored towards analytics specifically, but they already like they are already in in uh, or, or they also use WebAssembly to um, to evaluate queries, and um, yeah, it's it's very exciting how this space is evolving. So now you have this uh, uh, this um, the, the the very different choices uh, starting to emerge in the in the browser space, and you you no longer need to resort to JavaScript for things
0: that. Are probably better done in, in a database. So it is Web, do you think any application that, you know, has any sort of processing could benefit from looking at WebAssembly? And I'm thinking like right now, we're on a high definition video chat software. Like that, you know, that's something that it's it's maybe not completely database related, but is this something that could benefit a type of application that maybe is a good target for somebody to think about writing in WebAssembly? Or is that off center here?
1: So um, one thing that cycling back to the to the Chrome developers, like this, uh, this always strikes me, like they did an excellent job to get JavaScript up to speed, right So right now we are looking at at uh, performances of JavaScript even if you're or, or even with JavaScript being such a dynamic and uh, um, flexible language, um, they did a pretty good job at executing this JavaScript code very efficiently. That means that for many use cases, JavaScript will just be perfectly fine. So right now, WebAssembly is still very young, which means that you are fighting very many like childhood problems of, uh, of, of WebAssembly still. And in the meantime, if you would have just picked JavaScript, it would have done you the job almost as good as with WebAssembly. And then you would have been already done with the task. So... JavaScript is still a very solid choice. Also, like one thing that WebAssembly cannot do very well is interacting, for instance, with the with the DOM. So if you have your, your document object model of your website and you just want to have, for instance, React uh, representing your website state, this is nothing you would today do with WebAssembly. So in all these cases where you, for instance, want to react to a user event or things like this, WebAssembly is just not the right fit today. So, for for the question whether you should use WebAssembly, usually I think if if you are processing a lot, uh, a lot of data, usually then WebAssembly is probably something you could consider with something like DuckDB was For cases where you are not processing bound, I would probably not use it today unless you you want to unify your stack. Right there are these, these uh, projects like uh, um, in the .NET world Blazor, where you can just basically write uh, asp.net uh, code and just run it in your browser right um these things are an upside because you can just have the almost the same code base and run it over uh, on the on the client side but this is not an argument more uh, anymore about uh, performance right this is more an argument about convenience than and I, I at least see the near-term and mid-term future of WebAssembly being more an accelerator. So you have cases that benefit from a better processing efficiency. Then you write your, your uh, the, the main application still in JavaScript with React or whatever framework uh, you choose. And then you just, for these performance sensitive things, you glue
0: your, your database or your WebAssembly code to your application. So right now it's very much in the phase of like, it, it works and it has, you know, very tangible benefits, but how realistic is it to use it? It's in certain very specific use cases right now that relate to maybe processing. Um, and cause yeah, jo- I mean, JavaScript is so mature at this point. And like you said, uh, I've, I've watched other YouTube videos you know conferences and stuff of people talking about well you know we had this problem but the chrome guys just solved it by making javascript faster again so you know that's where <laughs> they just keep doing a very good job at making it javascript faster so
1: yeah usually usually today like more and more things are about data right so um, even if you'd like uh, just pick our use case of like accelerating analytical processing in the browser um this already touches a very large variety of of use cases right so probably with with data being like ever more present and more and more relevant to users um the data processing alone is a very strong argument probably to consider sooner or later using DuckDB, wasn't or like a database in WebAssembly, whatever it it will be um because this is still something that we are good at but um yeah as you said for if you have just a a, an application or a crm tool or whatever like a a very um um a very complex interface where you need to guide users and so on this is nothing that you would where you would benefit from WebAssembly immediately
0: gotcha and one last thing about the WebAssembly. just as a topic in general, um, you know, it's a it's standardized, you know, compiled language by which like these engines can run code and run as you said is at near native speeds. That's one of that's a big thing for like a language like Go, uh, where you can write something and you know it runs everywhere. Do you think that WebAssembly is going to start stepping into that role in any way of being a, just a common, a common, you know? runtime that people are just going to use to to perform the work that they need that they need to do
1: yeah uh, it's interesting
0: that you that you focused on on runtime
1: um, one thing that strikes me as a very interesting future uh environment where WebAssembly will have a deep impact is actually uh, function as a service so if you if you look at for instance uh, cloudflare functions, I'm not quite Mm -hmm. sure whether you've, uh, yeah, sorry, Cloudflare workers and Netlify also has an offering. They, um, what they do instead of, or in contrast to AWS lambdas, they don't like, they use just WebAssembly and JavaScript to, um, to build function as a service in a very cheap way. So there is a cool uh, article about how Cloudflare workers internally work, but they, uh, what they basically do is, while you do your HTTP handshake with Cloudflare, they already prepare your function to be executed. And then, when the HTTP handshake is done, they are ready. So, which which basically eliminates this cold start problem right. that you have with AWS Lambda. And the the interesting aspect of this is, um, if you if you have WebAssembly sitting in this stack, you you get near native execution speeds with the flexibility of the like. Isolation of v8 in these edge functions. So these edge functions work that way because you don't need a virtual machine to isolate your tenants and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, they are very snappy and can start up very quickly because you just run them over your your uh, v8, right? And the the uh, with uh, with WebAssembly being in the stack. You you get these the luxury of these very fast and cheap uh, functions at near native
0: speed. So it's like eight VMs. Yeah 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 So so
1: the, these Cloudflare workers are are quite uh, quite interesting. Of course, um, this is still also very young. So I, this is nothing we have uh, explored excessively today. But I totally see that running SQLite or DuckDB Wasm in there is a huge opportunity because then you just introduce another layer towards your data sitting in S3 Closer. that can scale much easier or, or, or much, much better uh, when answering your SQL queries um, at a lo- lower price. So you could, for instance, cycling back to this tandem thing, if you have your processing in your browser, you're processing on your nifty backend server and you have your processing on your in your edge servers in between in the function as a service, you could just decide I, I do my, my processing there like the closest to the user, but uh, the fir- or the, the closest to the data necessary in terms of downloading uh, performance or, or bandwidth speeds. So for instance, if you can't afford to ship the data to the user, maybe you can afford to just ship it to the edge worker and don't need to pay the price for, for the larger VM sitting in the background. So right. this, this, uh, multi-tier, uh, processing is ex- actually, I think a quite exciting opportunity for an embedded or in process analytical database because it allows you to just run complex SQL queries, uh, on all right. the, all of these layers. Um, yeah. So let's hope cloudflare puts that in because. <laughs> yeah, we looked at cloudflare workers, uh, more closely actually. And, um, one, one downside is they, they currently implement the service worker API, which doesn't allow us to mm-hmm. implement these remote, um, synchronous fetches that we talked about before, like mm-hmm. this file system we, we built on top of a file system that would partially read remote files. And right now, um, we can't do this in the current version of Cloudflare Workers, but I hope, uh, or, or I'm cautiously, cautiously optimistic that this will, at some point, be ruled out or sorted out, and then
0: um, yeah, we are we are happy
1: to to uh, work with them. This this would be quite
0: nice. That would be cool. As a user of Cloudflare Workers myself, that would be. I like I love to just dump. By computational needs on them, I don't know. Do they just make it really easy? You know, if there's simple aggregations and transformations, put it close to your customer.
1: Yes, totally. Um, and and sure. the costs are are
0: so small, right? So they are very, very cheap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like they definitely did something special, um, taking from the lambda people and making something novel. Um, anyway, we're coming up on time here, Andre. Um, before we you know go through our closing ceremonies here, is there is there anything that you would like to link to our listeners, point them to people you want to shout out at?
1: So um, yeah, I, I would love to just uh, uh, mention Mark and and Hannes, who have been uh, very generous and uh, very exciting to work with. So of course I am I'm working remotely with them, which uh, which was a quite interesting endeavor. Uh, and uh, those two have very big plans for for DuckDB, and I hope for for the best for them. So they they have this company called DuckDB Labs, which is doing uh, support contracts. So if you are interested in DuckDB or DuckDB Wasm, like uh, this is the uh, the best point to start. Just chat with them and approach us. We have a Discord server and
0: uh oh so you, we can link that for sure yeah if cool. you pass us, yeah
1: if you have anything coming up with uh with DuckDB or DuckDB wasn't just uh ping us there and we are happy to talk
0: so um yeah thanks thanks All for, right, yeah. for the time thank you for being on the show andre and hopefully some you know some people will start looking into WebAssembly and these new kind of website architectures that are going to shape tomorrow so Cool. Thanks, Thanks for coming on.
1: Thanks for listening to Pod Rocket. You can find us at Pod Rocket Pod on Twitter. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks.